Welcome everybody to Kremlin File, and this is episode two. And we are so pleased today to welcome Craig Unger to the pod. Hi, Craig. Hi, Craig. Welcome. Hi, Great yeah, to see you welcome, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And Craig, um, I got through, I read both your books of House of Putin, House of Trump, and American Compromat. And that's where we wanted to start today. Trump has had a relationship going back to Russia to Soviet days. I mean, he traveled to the Soviet Union in 1987 and, you know, for his Trump Tower deal. And, you know, and since then, he's continued to have a relationship. Can you tell us about that? Sure. It starts uh, really long ago. Most people didn't want to go back this far, but I go back to 1980, really, uh, 42 years ago. And Trump was approached by a guy named uh, Semyon Kislin. Mm. This happened to be the occasion of Donald Trump's first and one of his very few real uh, genuine successes as a real estate developer. It was at the nadir of New York's uh, bankruptcy. We were just poor as can be. And Trump was redeveloping what became the Grand Hyatt, right, right next to Grand Central Station. And like any uh, hotel, uh, hotels need lots of television sets. Mm. And he ended up buying them from a guy named Semyon Kislin. And Kislin, as I learned, uh, uh, and this is an on-the-record source, Yuri Schmitz, who was very helpful in my book, Yuri was a former KGB agent. He, he was a major in the KGB based in, in uh Washington Station. And while he was there in the 80s, his colleagues in New York Station in the KGB were recruiting Trump. So this, and according to Yuri, Semyon Kislin was uh, a KGB asset and, and his position was that known as a spotter agent. And that meant he was supposed to spot new talent. He was to recruit uh, potential uh, assets for the KGB. And he spotted Donald Trump and made him an offer he couldn't mm. refuse. Cheap TV sets. Donald Trump is always uh, ready for a bargain. And that is what opened the door of the KGB to Donald Trump. Uh, and that's where it all began. And what you start to see going on very subtly, and we don't, we don't know all the answers, but uh, in, by 1987, it was the KGB who set up Trump's uh, first trip to Moscow. Mm. And there were KGB agents uh, in New York Station who were working uh, in the Soviet delegation to the United Nations. And uh, uh, they met with him. They, they ended up orchestrating his trip. And uh, that's when they began really cultivating him and grooming him. Uh, Yuri Schwitz told me how he groomed people at the same time. And he would fill their heads uh, with KGB talking points. And it's interesting because around this era in the 84, 85 period, the period leading up to Trump's first trip, suddenly he uh, starts presenting himself as an expert on uh, arms control agreements, yeah. which is kind of ludicrous. <laughs> At the same time, he was hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein and uh, uh, living a very high life. And the idea that he is somehow. Uh, so smart that he can is good for negotiating this was absolutely ridiculous and and it certainly seems like that was he was spouting KGB talking points wow. again and again and wow. again. Wow! Wow! Um, so Trump visits um, Moscow and St. Petersburg, well at the time Leningrad, and then he comes back and he places 
ads. These ads, I mean, this is, you know, a character who's basically seen as a playboy in all the New York local papers, partying all the time and and whatnot. And he places these ads attacking our um, allies and, you know, saying that criticizing America's foreign policy, basically the same spiel we heard when he was running for election. I mean, you could have copied that ad and played it right now. What is the significance of that ad? And then a step further, a lot of people don't realize that after he came back, he decides that he's going to run for president. And sure enough, um, Roger Stone, who is now should be worrying about his you know, relationship with Oath Keepers, mm-hmm. is the one who helps him, you know, begin somewhat of this campaign. Can you tell us about that, the ads and, and um, the president thing? Sure. It's um, well, the, the most obvious thing is these are KGB talking points mm. and they were at the time. And, and I went back and researched uh, KGB disinformation scams that were going on at the time. And this was very much in line with them. And Yuri Schwitz again was telling me exactly how this worked, because Yuri was cultivating his own agent at the time. And you sort of have long discussions with them and you implant uh, you know, Trump is someone who would uh, uh, is is very narcissistic. It's very easy to play upon his ego. And they would say things like, uh, wow, you have such interesting unorthodox ideas. You should really be speaking out on this. And don't you think thus and mm-hmm. such? And don't you think thus and such? And at the time, uh, the Soviets were very uh, upset about our alliance with Japan, America's alliance with Japan. And they were upset about it because they were fighting uh, with Japan over territory, uh, uh, disputed territorial islands between uh, Japan and the Soviet Union. And this was the kind of uh, issue that, frankly, in the United States was a non-issue. Nobody was talking about it. I mean, I went back and searched the newspapers during that era. Uh, also at the time, as you mentioned, uh, Trump was running around with Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, he was Mr. Playboy. What he had no intrinsic interest in this, and yet suddenly he takes out. He Ooh, he does yeah. attempt a run for president. That is, he goes uh, to New Hampshire, where the New Hampshire primary is the first step, where it's it's traditional to dip your toe in the waters and have breakfast at this diner in New Hampshire with all the Republican candidates. And he did that, and then he took out. A full page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. And it had all these talking points, including uh, uh, the stuff about Japan. And uh, it's just there is no other explanation anyone has come up with than that he was uh, repeating KGB talking points. And he had just gotten back from Moscow uh, where they had been grooming him. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I saw him in an interview on Larry King. I think after he had taken out that ad and in fact, it was sort of like listening to what he was saying sounded. So these were the Russian talking points, basically. That's what it sounded like from the beginning to the end of the interview. It was absolutely incredible. And then he's repeated it even when he became president as well. And to remind our audience, 
Trump is cheap. I mean, he doesn't want to take a penny out of his pocket. Right, right. And he paid for oh, yeah, these yeah. ads out of pocket. It came out, or maybe it didn't come out of his pocket, but eventually maybe he was reimbursed. Let's move from the KGB for a moment, okay, into another group of people that we often okay talk about and uh you know we're we're constantly hypothesizing whether this is true or not Craig you're going to tell us about this um could you please discuss let's say the three decades uh maybe even more than that of Trump's dealing with the Russian organized crime and you've already mentioned Kislin, okay, in this relationship, okay. Could you could you talk about uh, could you talk about that? And maybe sure. I mean, it, what, what's so frustrating us, about right, the the info on this? Yeah, what what, what I, I think is so frustrating about this, and much of it is really frustrating, is so much of it's perfectly legal. Wow. And an old friend of mine, Mike uh, Mike Kinsley, uh, had a wonderful phrase I use quoting it. The real scandal is what is legal. Wow. And Donald Trump started working with the Russian mafia nearly 40 years wow. ago. And I, well, I, I, I told you the story of him and Semyon yeah. Kislin. But in 1984, a guy named David Bogdan went to Trump Tower in 721 Fifth Avenue, uh, had $5 million in cash and said, I'll take six, uh, he had $6 million in cash, said, I'll take five convicts. Uh, Bogdan was in the Russian mafia. And this is the kind of all cash transaction Trump did again and again, uh, often, at least, and when I say often, I mean at least 1,300 times, through limited liability, anonymous companies in which the beneficial owner is anonymous. And if you go to, a lot of it's in public records, the number of uh, Russian mobsters who were living in or own places in Trump Tower. Vaslav wow. Ivankov was one of the most brutal mobsters. He had places in Trump Tower. He'd go to the casinos. Uh, I found at least 13 people, uh, member. And uh, I mean, some of this is simply, you get their names online because uh, they're real estate records online. And then you Google them. And uh, I, I very early on, uh, a friend of mine who's a human rights lawyer who'd done, business, uh, done a lot of work in the former Soviet Union uh, told me that uh, Trump was close to Simeon Mogilevich, wow. who was the, uh, and Mogilevich yeah. was getting his claws into wow. Trump. Yeah. Can I ask, was some people I think don't know who Mogilevich is. I mean, we know who he is. But could you just give us a little sure. bit on him? Because he's a, he's a, a, an extremely important uh, figure, let's say, right, figure. in the Russian organized yeah. crime. Right. Well, his nickname became the Brainy Don, and he was not the single most powerful person, but he was considered the brains behind their financial scams. He was he was uh, a master of money laundering. He owned uh, chains of strip clubs in uh, in Eastern Europe mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of prostitution. And uh, he he was. Uh, and still is one of the most powerful people in the Russian mafia. He's getting on in years, but but there are lots of pictures of him with Sergei Mikhailov and others of the most powerful mobsters. Uh, uh, so he he uh, is, you know I don't know if that he's actually met with Trump, but a lot of his uh, associates uh, 
were tied right, to it. Right, right. And he's yes. still alive. He's yeah. still alive. Yes, okay. he is. Yeah. So I wasn't sure about that. And he's uh, he's been cooperating with the Russian government for decades, okay. too. Okay. So yeah. there's a direct link to the Russian government. Yeah. And and we shouldn't forget this, because people like Felix Sater have sort of been out of the news for a while. But Trump, you know, went belly up in Atlantic City, was deeply, deeply bankrupt, billions in debt. And once again, the Russians came to bail him out. And in 2002, Bayrock Group, if people remember that, uh, they started, uh, they, they had their own little company, a real estate developed company. The offices were located in Trump Tower, just two floors where Trump's office was in itself. And all their money came from Russian mobsters. And the Russian mafia, it's also important to remember, uh, works hand in hand with the K, well, with Russian yeah. intelligence. Um, it's very different than the American mafia, which is always at war with the FBI. This is uh, works hand in glove with them. And uh, that's not something that's even open to uh, to question, really. I mean, uh, people like uh, General uh, Oleg Kalugin told me mm -hmm. that. Uh, um, uh, Yuri Schmitz told me that. I mean, it, it, it's just sort of American CIAs that's told right. me that. Um, so if, if, you know, and when you had that influx of the Russian mafia and the Brighton Beast in Brooklyn in the 80s, uh, everything tied together. So just imagine when a man becomes, gets in a sensitive, powerful position, like, hey, being president mm. of the United States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the all his tenants are Russian monsters. To me, that's a problem. Yeah, you know? yeah. Given that he had sold thirteen hundred condos through uh, oh my God. methods that appear to be money laundering, thirteen hundred, thirteen hundred. That's and we, yep, right. And, and a, a low end condo would be a million dollars for him. Holy I mean, they're probably shit. close to two million average, I would think. So, so we're up in the billion, in the low billions there. Uh, if you don't think he's indebted to Russia, I think he is. And when you get back to the, and that's not even including uh, when Bayrock gets involved and he builds the Trump Soho and he gets, I think it was $400 million that comes through uh, groups that are linked to the Russian mafia, like the FL group and various Icelandic banks and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, well, at guess. one point... Um he had three operations running out of Trump Tower. He had the Bayrock operation. Um, there was another guy, Chuck Blazer, who... He had actually two apartments in Trump Towers, one for his cat, one for himself. And he was involved in the, um, if I remember correctly, the FIFA scandal fixing oh, okay. uh, for Putin. And then you had Taiwan Chick, uh, who had a gambling um, and money laundering ring being run out of Trump Towers. All of the same years. Yeah, well, that, that's one of the things that, that is so frustrating is that real estate uh, regulations are so lax that it's virtually impossible to prove guilt on Trump's part. That is, you have to prove that he knew the money was coming from illicit sources and get inside his mind is a very, very thankless task. Wow. <laughs> it might be very dirty. They should, they should just well. change the law then but, at that um, point. I, but I would argue that... Uh, 1300 oh, yeah. times constitutes yeah. a pattern which suggests knowledge. It's not, if it was three or four times, could have made a mistake. That could right? be an okay. accident. Yeah. I yeah. mean, but Kazakhstan was in. 
Kazakhstan was recently in the news. And I mean, you had the Kazakh family laundering money through Trump Soho. Oh, man. So, I Everybody mean, and that money came from. Yeah. So are we, right? Everywhere. So are we. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, I had another question. So, um, when Trump ran for president, we all watched Paul Manafort step on stage and he was announced to be his new campaign manager. I mean, I remember reading the most ridiculous article from a mainstream outlet, either New York Times or probably New York Times, um, that basically said that, you know, Paul Manafort flew from Trump Tower, where he lives a few floors under Trump, to Florida to, I mean, to California to speak with Tom Barrack um, in order to get that position as campaign manager, because, you know, it was hard, I guess, to knock on Trump's door. <laughs> but what many people fail to realize is there's a relationship between Trump and Manafort. Can you tell us about that? How long do they know each other? Mm. Well, just 40 years before. Oh, that. wow. That's <laughs> it? Everything goes way, way back. Just Whoa. 40 years. Yeah. That's it? Okay. Um, and, Same with uh, Roger Stone, it, right? Yes. And, and they were, uh, were, and Roger Stone through Roy Cohn, who mm. was, uh, when you talk about Donald Trump, you have to talk about Roy Cohn. And, and he was the ultimate fixer in a way. And Manafort and Roger Stone sort of learned at his knee. And Roy Cohn, of course, was the uh, he's most famous for his ties for being Joseph McCarthy's aide. But he was a, a dangerous, dangerous guy. He was the ultimate fixer. When I did reporting in the 1980s and i was at uh new york magazine i i was privileged to get a call from roy cohen who just Whoa. uh screamed at me and said he was gonna uh ruin my life we ended up putting this was a studio 54's tax evasion scandal and we ended up putting them in jail and uh well obviously we were right and they went to jail and roy cohen never got back and your life but, wasn't ruined it's very much a fixer in that mold and and he and Roger Stone had uh, consulting firm, firms on Black Manafort and Stone. They existed under various different entities at various times. But they became known as the torturer's lobby because they would represent um, dictators and torturers all yeah. over the world, uh, whether it was Ferdinand Marcos or Mobuto or whomever. And they thought nothing of taking on the most evil <laughs> dictator in the world as long as they pay their bills. And what you saw with them, and they they, they um, have a big responsibility in this. You know, I, when I remember for, when I first heard about lobbying, I was agog that how lawyers would sell their souls to represent the pharmaceutical industry or big oil and do laws. Well, these guys took it a step farther and represented foreign dictators. And Manafort, of course, went on to uh, nab the biggest foreign dictator of all, uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, so, uh, so I think it started around 2004 when he started uh, first working with Yanukovych. And his job was to groom Yanukovych and make him an acceptable candidate who would carry forth uh, Vladimir Putin's wishes and policies, but would do so in a sanitized way that could win an election, maybe or maybe not legitimately. And he used every trick in the book to do this. He used disinformation. He thought up 
Uh, he created phony uh, think tanks, which produced uh, disinformation. Uh, and um, it, it was almost as if this was a dry run for what Manafort would do with Donald Trump when he became Trump's wow. uh, campaign manager. Wow, wow. In fact, this brings us, okay, going from, let's say, Ukraine and what was happening with Manafort, uh, so on and so forth, back into the States, because it, maybe this would help to explain a little bit about his foreign pol- Trump's foreign policy choices that for us just mm-hmm. seem like, I mean, if we're anybody looking on that doesn't know, didn't know background or anything like that, uh, would be absolutely shocked. And we were shocked. I think Helsinki 2018 was a shock to most people all over the globe, okay, Uh, the way that he acted with Putin and everything. Can you discuss, right, um, a lot of those decisions obviously seem as though they fell in line with a lot of what the Kremlin was saying, and it's exactly what we're saying here. Um, Craig, can you give us, for example, a few examples of that? And also, what kind of damage do you think that that did? Okay, to let's say the intelligence community, law enforcement, and a lot of the sources that were helping, you know, the CIA and other investigative bodies. Right. Well, one is, I mean, uh, it, it, the more you get into it, the more I, I don't think of I, I think of Trump purely as an agent, Russia. Wow. Really. I mean, that, that's what he was. And if you look at his foreign policy, let, let me just. If you go back to April of 2016, uh, I believe it was April, uh, Trump had a press conference at which he announced his foreign policy, his first uh, foreign policy presentation of a major presidential candidate. And it was hosted by Dimitri Symes. Well, Dimitri Symes, according to Yuri and uh, Yuri Schwitz and several other sources, yes. this was not hard to pin down, is a Russian agent. Well, excuse me, you, if you have... An agent of Russian intelligence hosting your foreign policy. Why doesn't anyone uh, doesn't shouldn't that ring alarm yeah, bells? Like three, three, Apparently what are they called? Three fire something. alarm bells or something? You know, going off. Five alarm bells. Exactly. Then let's let's move forward. To, let's move forward to October of the same year. Donald Trump Jr., the favorite son of, of Donald Trump, uh, gives a speech at a think tank in Paris. Now, everything I'm about to say is perfectly legal. Um, he's paid uh, $50,000 to $100,000 for it. Um, he, um, but what no one says is the think tank is a Russian front. Right. It's a front for Russian intelligence. And the woman in charge, uh, Rhonda Cassis, is, I, I love her as a character because she's sort of, uh, the hottest Syrian model and a friend of uh, but, uh, Bashar al-Assad. Oh. And she's also a Russian asset. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here he is being paid by a Russian front. He is given the talking points. She said this on her Facebook page of what they, of what Russia's policy, what they want to do. And they want uh, the United States to pull out of Syria. So Trump Jr. is paid. He gets talking point from the Russians. Presumably, he has a relationship with his father. And the next year, his father as president 
does exactly what Putin wants and pulls troops out of Syria, leaving yeah. the Russians in yeah. control. Yeah, yeah. So you see that kind of thing again and again with Trump. We all know about Helsinki. We know about the day after uh, Comey was fired. And we know about Trump calling to Russia if you've got those 30,000 emails. I mean, it seems to me, uh, people who say there was no collusion, how can you debate collusion? And the debate is, was any of that legal or illegal? And technically, it may be hard to prove the illegality, but excuse me, if someone's giving you millions and millions of dollars, you occasionally do a favor in return. Uh, It doesn't have to be a quid pro quo in which uh, everything explicitly is spelled out on paper. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think a lot of people forget that Putin is the only person that Trump did not berate um, he, you know, he's the only person that he actually left alone and never said anything except for positive things. So that's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something. No. And I mean, even during health thinking, I mean, he stood oh, there, no, he like you a, know, yeah. with a KGB agent, like uh, defending dog. Russian intelligence yeah. and attacking us intelligence and law enforcement. Yeah. I mean, Today, for example, you, you guys may know more about this than I, but we saw the Guardian report uh, saying that uh, Russians are planning a false flag operation. That appears to have come from, that would never have come out uh, if Trump was still president. Uh, you, and you talk about the danger uh, to our intelligence. Uh, Trump was doing enormous danger. He he was completely defanging us and leaving us completely yeah. undefended. Yeah. yeah, and isolating the United States from the rest of the world, um, breaking the transatlantic relationship. I mean that we're still feeling that today, frankly. Yeah, they still don't. They yeah, don't trust a hundred percent. No, no, it did quite a mm-hmm. lot of damage because of what's happening internally in the United States. Mm-hmm. Craig, you said the best um, intelligence operations are legal. Uh, Mueller apparently spent two years looking, looking, came out with the report. The Sun Intelligence came out with the report, which actually was more detailed than Mueller. Um, the end, more bold. They actually pretty much called Manafort a Russian agent. Um, but with Mueller, he said he found no conspiracy, no collusion, nothing. And allegedly, there was supposed to be a counterintelligence operation. Can you tell us the difference between counterintelligence operations and criminal operations? And do we actually see the end result of like prosecutions in a counterintelligence operation? Right. Well, well, uh, there's a big difference because, as I was saying when I when I talked about uh, Donald Trump's operation in. Uh, in France, talking before the, the, the French think tank in Paris, um, I, I think that's an intelligence operation, mm-hmm. but there's nothing illegal going right. on. And um, the Russians are very, very finely attuned to this. And it's quite possible. I mean, this is partly what's wrong with our whole legal system is that the laws are written by lawyers who are working for corporations who are trying to get around the laws. Mm-hmm. So there are always <laughs> loopholes built in somewhere. And I, I think that's true in intelligence as well. It's true in the real, real estate, as I explained earlier. And when it came to the Mueller investigation, which I think was a disastrous failure, um, 
if you go back to its origin, it started as an FBI investigation uh, when James Comey was head of the FBI. And Comey testified before Congress that this was going to be a counterintelligence operation, which is what it should have been. Uh, Comey was immediately fired. Of course, Trump chortled about it with the Russians the next day in the Oval Office. And he appointed Mueller, who initially was uh, tasked with performing the same counterintelligence operation. But over time, uh, it was Rod Rosenstein who said, don't bother with that. Just make it a criminal investigation. Well, that's a big, big difference. And I think this basically went under the radar of the mainstream media. Americans didn't understand the difference at all. But if you want it, but, you know, when, when we talk about impeachment and high crimes and misdemeanors, it's not just uh, explicit violations of the law we're after. We're after whether or not our president or any other public official, for that matter, has been compromised. And I would just say, to me, it stands on its face that if Russia gives you a few hundred million dollars, <laughs> you're compromised. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we see what they got in, in return yeah. for it. Well, it's the big question, right? Is this person acting on whose behalf, right? Is it on our behalf as citizens or right. whoever's their paymaster? Right. Or who has done them favors in the past, who's taken their family jewels out of the fires of, let's say, financial ruin. Um, You know, this is this is. um, Yeah. Yeah. Right. The the thing with the Mueller investigation, I think, you know, if you recall, when he started, the Democrats didn't control either House of Congress. They had nothing. So they put all their hope into Mueller. And I think they put much too much and they didn't realize. He was very close to William Barr, who was sort of the enabler in chief for Donald Trump. Uh, and they go back a long ways. And, and Mueller was Decades. the ultimate company man who didn't want to shake things up too much. Um, it's also uh, looking at, uh, worth looking at the FBI and why they didn't prosecute. And there were certain people. Why didn't they prosecute this more yeah. fully? And uh, Trump, very early on, and I discussed uh, this in in some detail in American Compromise, but going back to the 70s, he became friends with James Calstrom, who was head of the New York office of the FBI. And Trump made uh, a donation of, I believe, $1.3 million. Mm. And remember, this is, Olga points out, a very, very cheap (laughs) Donald Trump, but he made a uh, $1.3 million donation to Calstrom's favorite uh, FBI-related charity. And so you think he pro- he uh, examined what was going on at 721 Fifth mm. Avenue in great detail? I don't think mm. so. Um, I, and there, I, so the, Trump made clear he, he was going to have friends in the FBI in high places. Mm. And to add to that, we um, spoke about Kislin before, Kislin worked on, was appointed to the New York's Business Council by Giuliani. And at the same time, he was under FBI investigation for his dealings with the Russian organized crime, specifically who uh, Craig um, mentioned, Yaponchik or Ivankov, um, who, and, a, and another one who was a contract killer, supposedly um, he uh, uh, sponsored a visa for him. 
But he bought his way into Giuliani's life. And this was, you know, starting from the 80s into the 90s. And then we made, saw him make an appearance again, uh, what, two years ago or last year, running around Ukraine, you know, looking for all the Hunter Biden crap wow. um, yeah. that was a Russian intelligence operation. Yeah. yeah. So in 2016, when Trump ran, they had all this information. I mean, they knew a lot about him already and, and they didn't I do anything. So. That's my, you know, there was, they couldn't stop something order. like either put yes, up the guardrails, I mean, I call mean, the what? cops, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when he was coming down the, the escalator, know, yeah, just trip him, you know, <laughs> do something. Right. It's not just that. It's just, uh, you know, no one has questioned the stuff that I've printed. If they, if they yeah. had, I'd be in court yeah. right now because yeah. they would shoot my ass yeah. off. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but the New York Times won't pick up anything like this. Uh, and I would just think that ha the, the mere fact of laundering money, so much money, isn't that a – the Times doesn't think that's worth reporting. Wow. Um, uh, all these contacts with the Russians, the Semyon Kislin ties and so forth. But none of that, most of that has been left outside of the mainstream press. And it's very depressing. And Craig, are you working on something new? Can you give us a bit of a sneak peek with what's happening? Well, it's, it's, it's new and old, but it, it goes into what exactly what we've been talking about. And I, I think I'm going to go back to 1980, but I, I want to... Um, uh, sort of fill in all the gaps and show that, in a way, this has been happening all along. And in 1980, we had we had a situation where we had uh, uh, people in the Republican Party who were not in the government, who were making illegal deals with a hostile foreign power, who were trading arms with them, who were creating their own illegal foreign policy when they were not part of wow. government. And that they were doing it to interfere with the presidential election and to sway the electorate uh, for the Republicans. And they succeeded. And that was the start of the modern conservative movement. Oh, OK, so you're getting into that. So it was also like a parallel. Uh, it was a parallel foreign policy that was working at the same time. Can we say that? Yes. OK, OK. Craig, my last question to you is. Why do you think what has prevented American media from like reporting yeah. in detail on these things and actually addressing, you know, what happened and, you know, and how we got here as far as even with Trump, they never, you know, looked into uh, his prior history, even though it was all public knowledge and printed uh, before over the past decades, you know, in one fashion or another. And also, I mean, we saw the bizarre New York Times, you know, uh, headlines coming on the weekend before the 2016 election that basically said the FBI did not see any kind of, you know, uh, uh, connection, co collusion uh -huh. or connection between FBI and, and I mean, between Russia and the Trump campaign. And then even with Mueller, whether, you know, regardless of what we think of his end result, I mean, he exposed over a hundred contacts mm. over the campaign. Mm. So what happened with our media and how can our media be better? Like, what can we do? 
Well, there are a lot of things that that uh, affect the questions you're asking. Uh, one is the media, uh, you know, and, and the Times sort of leads the way. It's impossible not to talk about the Times when you talk about this. But they generally want to have uh, a good relationship uh, with the powers that be mm. uh, in, in both parties, particularly the Republicans, because they're always covering their ass because they're being called the liberal media. So I, I, I think they bend over backwards to be uh, uh, too fair. And what you end up mm. with is what we call both sidesism. Yeah. Uh, on the one mm. hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, the Democrats say this on the other. Well, if, if, if the Republicans say two and two and five and the Democrats disagree, I believe at, at a certain point, the reporter's first uh, responsibility is to bring truth to the readers, not yeah. to be fair to liars. I mean, well, you should be fair to liars, but call them out if they're lying. Um, and two and two is not five. And <laughs> Trump did not win the election. And you can't just treat things equally. But uh, the the other thing is reporters become addicted to their sources. Mm. We all do. And I I include myself. in this. But uh, it's very dangerous because once you do two or three stories with a certain person, they'll keep feeding you. And the only reason uh, Roger Stone or someone like that will feed you, and and he has, I've interviewed him several times, he'll keep feeding you if you run what he wants you to run. And reporters are often under the illusion, well, I had to talk to this side, and I had to talk to that side. No, no, no. These guys, you're carrying water for these mm. guys. That's what you end up doing all the time. And they rarely like to break with that. It's very hard to get them to break with that. Okay. Craig, are you at all afraid that, let's say, democracy, let's say, afraid for our democracy going forward? No, I think we it's more towards shaking oh, our shit. boots, I'm afraid. I think we're, it's very, very scary. And and the, the January 6th thing increasingly, uh, you know, we, uh, most of us didn't know everything. Uh, you know, when I finished my last book, it was essentially there's a train wreck coming, but I didn't know how yeah. it, the, the January 6th would be how it would take place. I knew it had to happen. And we're still finding out an awful lot of stuff about January 6th. But in general... What it points out is that we have a lot of uh, parts of our governments, and by, when I say plural, I mean local, state, a national level, that are merely ministerial, merely functional, literally counting the votes, one, mm. two, three. But then the votes are transferred. Well, can the next person tra- yeah. change the count yeah. when he transfer it? Um, and they're little, and and this is what they were trying to get Pence to do with the electoral votes. He had a merely ministerial function. Well, there are similar ministerial functions in state election boards all over the country. And what the Republicans have done, and and, and I, this is what I've been writing about in previous books, because in Texas and Alabama, you saw they just took the state Supreme Court, which in both states were nine to zero Democrat, and they made a nine to zero Republican. Wow. Uh, and, and this was under Karl Rove and George yeah. W. Bush and so forth. And they've done the same with state legislatures. So they're going to do that in every swing state there yeah. is that they control where they control local things. And in Georgia, and this we saw, uh, was it Brian Raffensperg, uh, uh the, the Secretary, Secretary of State of Georgia was a Republican, but 
he he was a stand up guy and he counted the votes Thank accurately. Goodness. Next time, yeah. no more. He's going to be gone. Yeah. This is the good thing about Trump is the pretense is ripped off. Yeah, because they did. For example, as I reported in uh, one of my books in Boss Rove in two thousand and four, the entire election came down to Ohio. Yeah. And we, uh, if Ohio went to John Kerry, Kerry would have been president. Instead, it went for Bush. But what we had going on there was a corrupt uh, Republican secretary of state who made sure that um, uh, black districts uh, wouldn't have enough voting booths. Meanwhile, at a white evangelical college, there'd be hundreds of voting booths. And they did dozens of things like that in Ohio, and uh, that may well have made the difference in the entire election. Can we thank you with all our heart here, okay, that you came along and talked to us? Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, KremlinFile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monica Mata, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordy Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarna. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> We're going to use your background as the uh, as all our backgrounds from now on. <laughs>